everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Pensburg Podcast. I am your host, Gareth Bahanna, and join with me once again is Hook Sorpik, Jim Rixner. Jim, how are you doing? Doing great. How's it going? Uh, I'm doing well myself. I don't know if the same can be said for the Pittsburgh Penguins after their most recent game against the New Jersey Devils, uh, but we will get into that momentarily. Jim, let's kick off this recap segment with the last couple of games the Penguins have played. We'll start off uh, March 13th against the Buffalo Sabres. Uh, the Penguins end up winning this game against the Sabres by a score of 3 to nothing. Uh, nothing exciting really happening in the first period. Jake Gensel nets his 10th goal of the season at the 16:37 mark of the second, a power play goal. Gives the Penguins a one to nothing lead. Uh, that would pretty much be the only uh, piece of tangible offense between both teams until Sidney Crosby got his 10th goal of the season at the 1907 mark in the third. Mark Jankowski registers his second goal of the season at 1944 to finish off the game. Gives the Penguins a three to nothing victory over the lowly Buffalo Sabres. Casey DeSmith registering the shutout, saving 24 out of 24 shots. Uh, Jim, looking at this game, like I said, not a ton of offense considering Jake Gensel's goal was really the only uh, the only standard goal I guess you could score. I believe Crosby and Jankowski both scored empty net goals, but uh, the Penguins. Did what they had to do against the Sabres once again, following their 5-2 to two victory. They get the nice shutout here against the Sabres. Any, any other thoughts you'd like to add to this game between the Penguins and Sabres from March 13th? Nope, not too much else. Buffalo was really just going through the motions. You could tell they're a terrible team, and their coach got fired a couple of days after this. So maybe they'll show some more life down the stretch or shuffle up their lines or do something because they just were very dreadful, and the Penguins just did what they had to do to get out there with the win. A road win is nothing to sneeze at. So the Penguins, uh, they move forward and uh, they play two games set against the Boston Bruins on March 15th and March 16th. Uh, we'll start with the game on the 15th, the Penguins winning by a score of 4-1. The Bruins, however, get the scoring going at the 647 mark of the first period. Matt Grizzlick gives the Bruins the one nothing lead on the power play. However, right after that, uh, the Penguins took full control of the game and really didn't look back. Evan Rodriguez gets his second goal of the season to tie the game at 1 at 16:51. A really weird knuckle puck that probably should have been saved by Bruins goaltender Yaroslav Halak. Sidney Crosby follows it up at the 18:34 mark of the first period. The Penguins take a 2-1 to lead. Crosby gets his uh, 11th goal of the season in what was a a pretty incredible shot, uh, a pretty incredible goal, all things considered, I believe, if I recall. That was a pretty uh, uh, high-angle shot for, for Crosby, not, not, a, not a goal that uh, too many around the league can score other than Crosby himself. Uh, moving into the second period, Evgeny Malkin on the power play gives the Penguins a 3-1 to one lead at the 11:40 mark of the second period. And Jake Gensel at 19:44 of the third period uh, gives the Penguins their fourth and final goal. They uh, finish the game, like I said, win by a score of 4-1. to one. Jim, you look at the scoreline here, uh, you think the Penguins win in pretty dominant fashion, scoring four straight goals after Grizzlick gets the Bruins going. Uh, 
And while the, the, the four goals scored against the Bruins is all well and good, considering that the, uh, the Penguins have struggled against the Bruins over the last several years, uh, I'd like to look individually at the statistics of Penguins goaltender Tristan Jari uh, making 42 saves on 43 shots for a 977 save percentage. I think he was the, the number one star of that game in my book, being able to stop a 42 uh, being able to make 42 saves on 43 shots there. Uh, really, overall, uh, it's the Jerry show here in this game against the Bruins. Uh, Jim, uh, any other thoughts you have in the 4-1 to victory over the Bruins on March 15th? It certainly was a great showing by Jerry. Uh, you look at it, the Bruins' top line of Marshawn, Pasternak, and Bergeron did great. They combined for 13 shots themselves in that one single game. And he stopped all of those shots. And Boston's a really top-heavy team. If you can keep those three guys quiet, chances are they're not going to do too much. And, yeah, the Penguins' goaltending really has been on the up-and-up since about mid-February and certainly has continued into March. And, yeah, it was it was great again and really driving factor along with Crosby, Malkin, Gensel, hearing the same names over and over. And it's a good sign because it's the Penguins' best players and they're coming through. And the Penguins would move forward, like I said, uh, completing the second game of their two-game set against the Boston Bruins on March 16th. And uh, the Penguins, however, would be the losers on this night, losing by a score of 2-1 to one to the Bruins. Their six-game winning streak comes to an end. David Pasternak gets the scoring going here for the Bruins at the 320 mark of the first period on the power play. Boston takes a one nothing lead. Brandon Tanev would find the equalizer for the Penguins, gets his seventh goal of the season at the 15-22 mark of the first period. Uh, No goals to report in the second period, and in the third period, Trent Frederick of the Bruins gets his fourth goal of the season. At the 7-07 mark, Boston takes a 2-1 lead. There was a little bit of a flurry there at the end of the game with the extra attacker for the Penguins, but at the end... Uh, nothing. Uh, the, Peng- the Penguins could muster no other goals. They lose the game by a a score of two to one. And Jim, the the big talking point of this game was the the, the hit that uh, Brandon Tanev laid on Bruins defenseman Jared Tenorti. Jim, looking at this hit, uh, there was a lot of talk and chatter on social media. Should it have been? Should should Tanev have been penalized for the hit? Uh, was it a dirty hit? People were. We're chiming in and and giving all sorts of opinions. Uh, With this game being in the rearview mirror and being a couple of days old now, I believe Brandon Tanev should have been penalized for at least charging. If you go back and watch the play in its entirety and you watch Brandon Tanev, he really goes out of his way to target the Bruins player. The hit itself was clean, Jim, but uh, again, I I would have been fine with a charging call. This led to, uh, of course, more and more people on social media talking about, you know, what is a clean hit in the NHL these days? Uh, why aren't the referees, why can't they be consistent? I think that's what the players want, Jim. The players want consistency on the ice. And as long as they can get the consistency as it relates to calling the penalties, I think they'd be satisfied. But Jim, I'll hand it over to you for you to give any of your thoughts on the Penguins 2-1 to loss to the Bruins on March 16th. That hit was really the major takeaway of the game. And yeah, the opinions are all over the map. Some people just think it was fine. And I mean, Tanev's hit was not late. It was low. He didn't leave his feet. He tucked his arm. He didn't hit him high. 
but he did hit him close to the boards. Like you said, he did cover a bit of ground to get him, but Tenorti was skating in to dump the puck, and that's just hockey. It's a contact sport. You know, a player is allowed to, to check someone, but unfortunately the end result was since Tenorti was on one foot, he went down kind of awkwardly when he got hit a few feet from the boards and he slid into the boards and he appeared to hurt himself. He's a player with concussion issues. So it might be something where, you know, if it was somebody else, maybe he doesn't get hurt. But since it was a specific player, he did get hurt with another concussion probably. And so, yeah, I, I don't know because it's, it's all over the map. Like I said, some people said clean hit is part of the game. Some people like you mentioned would say, well, he came over and he did sort of, textbook charge adam did he do that yeah i guess so is it boarding is it not that's a big question these days because the nhl now is calling typically when you think of boarding it's when a player would take hit from behind in the numbers and push a guy face first into the walls yeah i agree with that and that's not what this was so yeah i i think you can kind of say like what's the point of calling it boarding since it's not really but it's at the same time, when something like that goes to a video review and a player suffers a major injury, it's hard for them to really overturn it in this day and age when they want to protect the players and they've seen that this guy was down for a while and barely drags himself off the ice to get to the locker room. Like Once that call is made on the ice, I, I don't know how they're going to overturn it in that situation, but Tanev wasn't suspended, which I think is the right call. The Penguins had to kill a five-minute major pe- penalty, which they did. And Malkin was already hurt as well, so they were down to 10 forwards, which really hurt them for the rest of that game. And they kind of just ran out of gas, I thought, and ended up losing a tight game. So that was kind of the punishment of itself. And we'll finish off the recap segment here. Jim, you alluded to the Malkin injury, and we will touch on that momentarily. We'll wrap up the recap segment here. The Penguins beginning a three-game set against the New Jersey Devils uh, in their most recent game a game that they would lose by a score of 3-2. to two. The Devils scoring three straight goals. They, Jack Hughes uh, gets the scoring going here for the Devils at the midway point of the first period, gets his seventh goal of the season. New Jersey takes a one nothing lead heading into the second period now. The, the uh, Devils are on the power play. P.K. Subban gets his third goal of the season at the 842 mark. Uh, the Devils take a 2-0 lead. Travis Zajac gets his third goal of the season at the midway point of the second period. The Devils now uh, lead the game by a score of 3-0. Jake Ensel, right at the tail end of the second period, would get the Penguins on the board uh, on the power play. The Devils still holding on to a two-goal lead now, 3-1. And in the third period... Brian Rust with five seconds left to go in the third period with the extra man out there. The Penguins trying to mount and finish the comeback, but they can't do it. Brian Rust gets uh, gets his 10th goal of the season. However, the Penguins lose this game by a score of 3-2. to two. Jim, it's unfortunate because you look at the, the current... Uh, the, the next set of games, the Penguins are playing against the likes of the Sabres and the Devils and the Rangers. And before the loss against the Bruins, before that game... You know, the Penguins were riding high. Opinions were starting to shift. Everyone was starting to say, you know, this. I think the Penguins really do look like uh, a, a decent-looking playoff team. And you mentioned it right at the tail end uh, of the point that you were making regarding the Malkin injury. And before the game against the Devils, it was announced that Evgeny Malkin and Teddy Bluger were placed on 
injured reserve. Evgeny Malkin was placed on injured reserve retroactive to March 16th, meaning that he will be unavailable until at least March 23rd. Jim, looking at the sum of this game against the Devils as I hand the conversation over to you, at the very least, this game you could tell the Penguins sorely missed the presence of both Evgeny Malkin and Teddy Bluger. It really looked like, to me, it was Sidney Crosby, Jake Gensel, and Brian Rust, and to a lesser extent, Kasperi Kapanen. And then the rest of that lineup is basically held together with duct tape and glue and whatever else you want to describe it as. Really, it's, it's just a bunch of bottom-of-your-lineup-type players, AHLers, uh, I'm surprised the Penguins put up a much, uh, as much of a fight as they did with how many bodies that they are currently missing. But Jim, as, as this game just concluded and we're talking about it now, what are your thoughts on the, the Penguins and Devils game uh, from March 18th? I actually thought they did pretty well. I mean, they got 42 shots on Wedgwood. The lineup isn't very good right now, but like you said, the Gensel-Crosby-Rust line was pretty good all night long. They were controlling play. But the line they were using as the second line with Evan Rodriguez, Kapanen, and Tanev, I thought they all acquitted themselves well. They played with energy. They were getting some shots off. They were looking good. And even the third line of Aston Reese, Jankowski, and Lafferty, not great on paper, but they tipped the ice a bit. They were staying out of their own ends, and the fourth line didn't really play too much. But I thought the Penguins were good for what they were. They had 15 shots from defensemen on Thursday night against the Devils. So they were definitely activating their defense, trying to get more offense from those guys. They were throwing a lot at the net, trying to get traffic. A lot of the goals they've given up have been like this. They kind of kept it simple and just threw a lot at Wedgwood. And to his credit, he played well. And the Devils were supposed to play Mackenzie Blackwood, and apparently he got hurt during the warm-ups. So Wedgwood had to come in after probably not mentally preparing, but I guess he did because he played really well, and he was the difference in the game and the reason why the Devils won, I thought. So that's just, it's going to be a battle. And the Devils on their side, they're without two of their best centers, and Nico Heeshear and Pavel Zaka was not able to play this game. So it just kind of is what it is. It's going to be a slog, but... As you kind of mentioned earlier, the Penguins play the Devils two more times this weekend, and then they play the Sabres two more times next week. And these aren't really great teams, so the Penguins are missing a lot, but they still have some talent too. They just have to work hard and maybe get a little luckier. And I think a, a game like Thursday is a game they could have easily won, and hopefully if they play the same way on Saturday, they actually will win. Jim, this will lead us into our our main segment that uh, we'll talk about here, and it relates to the the injuries surrounding the team, specifically on the forward side. Uh, they're currently missing Jared McCann, Evgeny Malkin, and Teddy Bluger, like I previously mentioned. Jason Zucker, they're hoping to get Jason Zucker back before the end of the regular season. In a positive, uh, the Penguins do, uh, they received John Marino, who returned after missing four games uh, that he they he played again in the game against the Devils, so it's nice to have him back on the blue line. But Jim, I, I know we kind of talked about it last week, and the the kind of mindset that that this new general manager and Ron Hextall will have a, 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 as it comes to uh, you know making trades and and acquiring new players. Um, given the Penguins roster right now, we we know that. Malkin and Bluker are currently on injured reserve. Um, I don't know if the if the Penguins start playing the likes of the Bruins 
and the Islanders and the Flyers. Um, you know, if if the Penguins have to ice the, the lineup that we saw against the Devils, if they have to ice that lineup quite regularly, I don't know how, how much of a threat they will be against the better teams in the division with getting the Devils and the Sabres, two teams like you had mentioned, that aren't, you know, they aren't very good on paper. They're really going nowhere this season. Uh, it's fortunate, uh, schedule-wise, time-wise, that, that, that they're missing Bluger and Malkin. But the fact that they're missing all of these players on offense, um, and we had mentioned it last week, it's been a talking point for several weeks now. The Penguins are cap-strapped. You know, I, I, they don't have a lot of assets to trade out to teams, be it draft picks or prospects. If, if, if Malkin and Bluger are going to miss extended periods of time, uh, you know, heading into April and May as the season comes to a close, do these injuries to these forwards perhaps speed up Hextall's plans of acquiring anybody? I, like, I don't know who's, I don't know who's currently on the, the, the trade bait list or, or, you know, who, who's out there, who, who are some other players that teams are, are dangling out there, but is is are Hextall's plans going to change moving forward if these players are going to be out for longer periods of time? He definitely has to consider that, but the problem is, like you said, there's not a lot out there. It's been a lot of people have talked about that lately, including Greg Wyshynski from ESPN, saying that people are just saying that right now the NHL trade market doesn't really exist. A lot of teams are close to the playoffs, so nobody is selling and especially if you look at the teams who are clearly out of the playoffs, they don't even have a good center really to go and get. So in a way, I think the Penguins kind of are boxed in and they're kind of screwed. Like you said, they don't have cap space. They don't have a lot of assets to trade. And if we don't really know as of right now, they haven't said how bad the Malkin injury is. He's obviously going to miss at least one week and possibly more because it looked like he dinged his knee. And usually that could be, you know somewhat of a significant in- injury, but they haven't said if he's going to miss one week, two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks. They haven't said, but if Malkin's going to miss six, seven, eight weeks, this team's kind of in trouble anyways, because there's not a trade out there that they're going to replace him or do anything with. And that's kind of one of the problems with the depth of this team is that they're only going to do what their big stars can do and we saw that earlier in the year when Malkin and Latang started slow the team wasn't playing well and not winning a lot and then the past two or three weeks Malkin and Latang were playing a lot better and Malkin in particular generating a ton of points looking like his old self and it's really a shame he got hurt with him playing so well because now the team's kind of in a bind and Ron Hextall is known as a patient manager and that's going to probably take some getting used to because he's replacing a guy who wasn't patient at all but I don't really know what the Penguins do or where they go from here if it is significant injuries to some of their players. On the good news, it looks like Jared McCann could be back any day now, so he's a good piece, especially since he can play center or wing, and they might, I I would think, use him as a center because they have Evan Rodriguez in the second-line center role now, and that's not something that, to your point, that you can go against the Washington Capitals or the Philadelphia Flyers or a team like that and really expect to win. So, yeah, it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a problem for the Pens if, if these injuries mount up, but that's what happens when right now four of their top nine forwards are all hurt at the same time, and just no team is really going to survive that for a long time with so many good players all hurt at the same time. Yeah, let's hope that, you know, as we inch towards the trading deadline, the, the Penguins, I would guess that their their goal is to 
tread water with all of these bodies that that are out. Hope that you know, just hope that they don't drown and fall behind uh, all of the other teams that they're currently fighting for in regards to playoff positioning. But like you mentioned, Jim. Uh, this team, as it's currently constructed, is pretty top-heavy. I would agree with that, and I think a lot of other fans would agree with that. And um, another another point that you mentioned, too, that, and you mentioned it last week as well, I think it's, it's going to have to take some getting used to to watching how Ron Hextall operates. He's not that, that gun, he doesn't have that gunslinging mentality that, that Jim Rutherford did. And, Jim, it's funny. I, I've seen people on social media, with all of the injuries that they've all of a sudden sustained, the Penguins have, I've seen people talk about the, the, the different what if scenarios uh, that if Jim Rutherford were still here and if he still was the general manager, you know, what kind of crazy move would he have already pulled off? What kind of, uh, how many forwards or how many defensemen would he have found a way to, uh, get traded to Pittsburgh? So it's definitely going to, uh, take some getting used to, we're definitely going to have to wait and see what kind of tricks, Ron Hextall has up his sleeve, but for the time being, like I said, I think the Penguins just have to hope that they can, you know, maintain the course as best as they can and hope that these injuries timelines aren't as severe and all of the players that they're missing and Bluger and Zucker and Malkin and McCann, all of the timelines aren't as prolonged as we may be theoretically thinking that they are. But like I said, we'll have to wait and see this time next week. It may be a completely different story. Who knows? Jim, we're going to move into our mailbag segment now. And for those who are interested, if you're a first-time listener or a long-time listener and you'd like to contribute to the mailbag segment, you can do so by following our Pensburg Podcast Twitter account. Every week, we will send out a mailbag tweet asking for your participation in the mailbag segment. We love getting all sorts of crazy and wacky fun hockey or non-hockey related questions. And Jim, like we have done so many times before, you'll get first crack at the mailbag with Commander Kern's question. And he has this to say, Brandon Tanev got ejected from the Bruins game because of an unfortunate but clean hit to Jared Tenorti. Can you provide some insight on the NHL's hit or miss refereeing? Also, why is a call on the ice rarely overturned, even with video review? Good question. We talked on the video over turning a little bit and especially like injury situation like I said I don't think they're ever going to reduce something down to a two-minute penalty and that's certainly a sensitive issue and topic for the Boston Bruins as well they're going crazy about it and they've lost players to similar hits so that's just the way it goes and unfortunately it's just the NHL is inconsistent at refereeing there's so many different crews and even Thursday against the Devils Brian Dumoulin basically cross-checked a guy into the boards from behind a textbook should have been a textbook two-minute boarding call it wasn't penalized at all so that's just kind of it's inconsistent right now it's humans that are judging a high-speed game it's, it's really tough and that's what we're seeing unfortunately is that there's no easy answers and there's no way to be that even with it it just hopefully the circumstances break that it's not too unfair or balances out in the long run our next question comes from Frytime, who says, Who benefited from gains in equipment technology more, skaters or goalies? Have to think skaters based on sticks alone, but pads have to be feather-like compared to the older ones. Frytime and Jim, I, I, I've taken some time to do some research about the the evolution of the the sticks and the evolution of, of goalie equipment. And 
obviously back when hockey's origins started in in probably the mid to late 1800s, that's when the first stick manufacturers start to emerge in Canada and sticks are carved out from single pieces of wood, you know, and these sticks would uh, eventually begin to transform over time. Manufacturers begin wrapping wooden blades with fiberglass for reinforcement. Uh, that helps introduce the synthetic materials that you see in hockey sticks today. Uh, starting in the 1960s, players began heating and wedging their blades under doors to try and create curves. And uh, for th those hockey historians, uh, that's where you get the term banana blade. Uh, but as a result, the slap shots became incredibly dangerous and wildly unpredictable. Uh, as time progressed into the 70s, you know, more synthetic materials get to be adopted into the sticks. Um, in the 1980s, aluminum shafts began to rise in popularity. By the 90s, uh, the, the composite sticks and composite shafts become adopted. And really for the last 15 to 20 years or so, the one-piece composite stick has really been incredibly beneficial to skaters. And it's I think it's really done uh, done wonders in transforming the sport so those are a bit of the benefits coming from the sca the skaters and how uh, their equipment has transformed. And on the flip side, when you look at goalies, uh, I know doing some research, leg pads, they were originally very heavy and form-fitting, made of deer hair, leather, and they eventually morphed into what you see today being ultra-light versions made of, from other foams and synthetic materials. So other alterations included the flaps that were added along the inner edge of the leg pad for the knee to land on when a goalie would drop onto the ice and the it would uh, the introduction of a flatter squarer inside edge down on the length of the pad to the skate to reduce resistance when sliding alongside the ice uh the the five hole became easier to close with uh, pad improvements, the tension on the hips of goalies was eased with the ability to adopt a wider and more stable butterfly stance. And if you're a historian of the game, the butterfly stance was popularized by uh, uh, Patrick Waugh. Uh, it's obviously more commonplace now than it was probably 30, 40, 50 years ago. And even to this day, I think equipment companies can, are continuing to introduce more materials to leg pads to make it sliding along the ice even easier. They're improving knee stacks to allow for better pad seals, taller, more streamlined skates, which allow the goalies to maneuver more quickly and uh, easy, uh, make it easier for them to grab an edge or to stop and push along the ice. So that's an incredibly long-winded uh, history lesson on the evolution of hockey sticks and goalie pads and all of that things to basically answer your question fry time and say, I think you can make an argument that skaters and goaltenders have both been the beneficiaries of modern, uh, modern skating technology for the game that you watch today. Dude, did you say deer head deers? hair like five minutes ago? Yes. I didn't you, think we'd ever hear that. Okay. <laughs> wow. Hey, yeah. You learn something new every day. That's what I want to bring to the podcast. For sure. All right. Uh, question number three comes from Brian. With OV passing Phil Esposito for sixth all-time on the goal-scoring list, uh, what do you think could have been if the Penguins drafted him second in 2004 and Sidney Crosby first overall uh, the following year? Well, Vetskin got drafted first overall, so I don't know how you get him second, but... Really, the Penguins had better odds to win the 2004 lottery than Washington did, so 
really it could have been Penguins picking Ovechkin first overall in 2004, and then maybe Crosby first the next year with the league-wide draft lottery. And yeah, that would have been really insane. I mean, Crosby and Malkin together have done so much, but Ovechkin never got hurt like the two of them have. And Crosby and Ovechkin, if they would have meshed at li- as line mates, would have been really something else. I don't know. Like, as we talked last week, the people you think would play with Crosby don't end up on his line sometimes. So who knows if they would have been a 1-1-A combination anyways, where I'm sure would have played a lot together. But yeah, that would have been something with the greatest shooter of this generation with the greatest playmaker. And yeah, it was kind of close to happening. Our next question is from Taylor Anderson, who asks, what player, when put in the starting lineup, gives the Pens the greatest chance of losing? Who is the least valuable player on the team? Uh, I don't know if there's a player on this current roster that when put into the lineup, it makes the Penguins a much worse team than they would be when the player is not in the lineup. I don't think there's a player on this roster that is as bad uh, statistically speaking. And when looking at your advanced metrics, that is as, was as bad as Jack Johnson was. You know, he's obviously the the player that, uh, you know, received so much flack and criticism from fans online. But uh, the, the, the roster as it's currently constructed, and we talked about it earlier, is just filled with a lot of, like, meh players. Like, you don't, outside of the, the top two lines, we talked about it earlier, we described it as being top-heavy. Uh, Jim, I mean, if a player comes to mind for you, feel free to jump in, but... There's not a player, I mean, I don't know, Mark Jankowski, he, I mean, outside of the first couple of games against the Flyers at the start of the season, you know, he's been invisible. I don't yep, know. If you look at it, uh, Jankowski of the regular skaters has the lowest expected goals for percentage at 39% now, which is really, really terrible. The worst on the team, and I think the answer to the question is Kevin Churchman, who played two games and only had a 21% expected goals percentage which really should be 50 means like you give up as much as you are getting so to be 21 is really terrible so Kevin Churchman is probably the answer he's not an NHL player at all and luckily due to injuries he only had to play two games so there you go Kevin Churchman uh, Mark Jankowski yep there, there you go I'll be that <laughs> uh Mur- I hope I really don't want to butcher this name Murad Saeed is here with a question uh which Wilkes-Barre Scranton Penguins players Player, player or players should be called up. Looking at these two names, I know the Penguins signed them, and I probably should know how to pronounce them. Is it Radim Zorona and Jordy Bellavere or Bellarive? Uh, Bellarive, yeah. Jim, do you have any? Uh, I don't know how often or how closely you watch the Baby Penguins, but anybody? I know Zorona. I believe he currently leads the Baby Penguins in points, but uh, would he make a difference on this roster? I don't know. That's a good question, and he is, he's like six foot six. He's really tall. He's a center, so that's intriguing. It's his rookie season in North America. He's played in the Czech leagues a little bit. The answer to this question, as it turns out, was Frederick Goudreau, who the Penguins called up, and he made his season debut on Thursday. He has now 85 career games, and he's most famous. He scored three goals for the Predators in the 2017 Cup Final against the Penguins, but since then, he's just pretty much been an HL player. He's 27 years old, not a lot of upside, and that's kind of like a, a uninspiring choice, I would say, from the youngsters. Jordy Bellreve down in the minors has 
come on lately. He's having a good start to his season with four goals in the HL in eight games. I wouldn't mind seeing him because he's got some speed. He's got some hands, so he would be an intriguing target. Or is it Horner as well? But I don't think either one of those two are really going to get a chance because, like we mentioned, McCann's going to be back. And they have Evan Rodriguez, who can play center a little bit. And, um, you know, with them and Jankowski, that'll probably do it. It'd be nicer if if they just kind of said, hey, let's give it a whirl and play the young guys. But Mike Sullivan's pretty much only playing his fourth line seven, eight minutes anyways. So hopefully it won't be too much more than that. So I guess in that situation, they see a guy like Goudreau who has 80-plus games of NHL experience, and they know he can do it to some level of competency. So that's the direction that they ended up going. Yeah, Jim, you mentioned it there. I don't know if if the Penguins, as they're currently constructed organizationally from top to bottom in the NHL or the AHL, I don't know if they're close to getting that that kind of youth infusion that we saw in 2015-16 and 16-17. I I don't think that the players that they have in Wilkes-Barre Unless something happens and a lot of those players, a lot of those young guys really start to come on, uh, I don't think there are a lot of players down there that can come in here and make an immediate impact or give them, give the, the, the NHL Penguins a shot in the arm as badly as it may be needed in the very near future. Yep, that is the case. There's there's not a lot of, of players that are ready. There's no Brian Ross or Jake Gensel that's down there right now, which is a shame because... They could use it at a time like this, and that's pretty much how those guys got a lot of their opportunities was injuries, and Mike Sullivan came up, and he was really, really familiar with them. And since there was no training camp, uh, these NHL coaches, even though uh, Mike Vellucci, the Penguins' assistant coach, was the head coach there last year in Wilkes-Barre, but the NHL Pens, I don't think, know that much about the young guys, so that means they don't trust them, and when that happens, you just kind of get some of the retreads like... Uh, Goudreau or Anthony Angelo or guys like that, Colton Seaviewer, that's who they're going to lean on, not young guys with no resume whatsoever. All right, Jim, that'll do it. A pretty streamlined and pretty straightforward episode of the Pensburg podcast. Uh, do you have anything else you'd like to add before we wrap this episode up? Hey, dear, dear hair on goalies pads. Who knew before today? Like I said, you learn something new every day. I, I was astonished myself when I ended up coming across that little factoid. But for Jim Rixner, I have been Garrett Bahanna. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Pensburg Podcast, and we will see you next week.